What the sust? 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 I'm your interim host, Lizzie Hanna, and today we're going into the archive of ESS evening lectures and pulling out one of my absolute favorites. Um, in January 2022, I had the privilege of chatting with award-winning author and journalist Elizabeth Colbert. You might recognize Colbert from her writing in The New Yorker or from her highly acclaimed books such as The Sixth Extinction and Under a White Sky. I highly recommend her writing. It's digestible, frank, and investigative at heart. Her most recent book, Under a White Sky, dives into the techno fixes for the climate crisis, which proved to be both hilarious and frightening, and I highly recommend it. If you'd like to watch the full interview, I'll leave a link in the show notes to the College of Sustainability's Vimeo channel, where you can find that interview as well as the rest of the fabulous ESS evening lecture series. I hope you enjoy. I'd like to introduce our moderator for this evening, Lizzie Hanna. Lizzie is originally from Ontario and she is a third year student, uh, double majoring in ESS, Environment, Sustainability and Society and Philosophy. And she's an active member of the College of Sustainability community. Lizzie's also a colleague working quite part-time as part of the small but mighty communications team at the college, along with Georgia Atkin. And she handles the college's social media, including our weekly Sust bookshelf feature, which recommends books and videos on all aspects of environmental and social sustainability. And that's at Sust Life on Instagram. <clears throat> And it also gives me tremendous pleasure to introduce our special guest this evening, Elizabeth Colbert. Ms. Colbert's groundbreaking three-part series on climate change in The New Yorker won the 2006 National Magazine Award for Public Interest. And she's been a staff writer with The New Yorker since 1999. In 2015, her book, The Sixth Extinction, won the Pulitzer Prize for her meticulous examination of the loss of biodiversity in the Anthropocene. Last year, she published her latest book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, which takes a simultaneously horrifying and oddly humorous look currently trying to solve problems created by people trying to solve problems. In her academic life, Elizabeth studied literature at Yale and was a Fulbright scholar in Germany. She's a visiting fellow at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, where she lives. Elizabeth, Elizabeth thank you so much for being with us this evening. And Lizzie, I'll hand the mic over to you. Thank you so much, Deborah. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you here with us tonight, Elizabeth. Um, this lecture series really thrives off of the diversity of opinion and perspective and discipline of each speaker. Um, and as someone who is studying climate communications this semester and has taken an interest to it, um, this is a real treat. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. 
virtually um, virtually of course um so in since we don't want to bleed into time for student questions um since there are some students who um are required for their courses to be here and take notes and they're discussed in the courses um we'll give a little bit of structure to my little half so we don't bleed into that time um yeah just like to hear about your process uh of reporting and what you've reported on in your time how you came to the discipline and also where you think the discipline of i guess crisis communicator and climate reporter is headed in the future um given current trends so <laughs> <laughs> okay, Lizzie, that's a big question. Is that one question? Okay. That's that uh, we can tack that on to the end, maybe. Okay. Um <laughs> well, I I mean my own, you know, journey in 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 journalism, I guess, um, really began, Deborah alluded, you know, a, lo a long time ago before before some of you were many of you were born, probably. Um when I was actually, when I was a Fulbright scholar in Germany, I went to Germany, I was supposed to be studying German literature, but I didn't really study much German literature. I, I really decided I was interested in, 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 in being a journalist. And so I just sort of went out and started to, you know, write stories, travel stories mainly, and try to peddle them various places. And that one thing, you know, led to another. I was very fortunate and I, um, got an entry-level job at the New York Times. I covered politics for a long time. And I was actually hired at the New Yorker um, back, you know, 20 years ago now, over 20 years ago, to actually write a political column. I was supposed to be writing about mm -hmm. city politics. And this was right as um, the web was really taking over the news cycle and was driving the news really, really fast. <laughs> Once again, you guys probably don't remember the news before <laughs> the web, but um, it took a more leisurely pace. And, you know, when I worked at the Times, the newspaper closed. It closed at 11 o'clock at night. And it was very hard to get something into the paper after that, right? I mean, it was possible to break it open mm -hmm. for a huge news story. But, you know, basically that was it. And so, but now there's this 24 hour news cycle and um, it was really hard for a weekly, I was now at a weekly to cover stories that had been hashed over in an hour. <laughs> so I went out looking and thinking, I really started to think about, okay, what are the stories that are going to be true a week from now, they're gonna be true a month from now, they're gonna be true a year from now. And that brought me um, to, in a, through a series of things, really to climate change. This seemed to be like the big story of our time that uh, was going to be around for a long time. It didn't matter if you wrote about it this week or next week, it was, it, it was going to be there. And um, I wrote, uh, I ended up writing that series, a series that, that, that Deborah alluded to, um, which was called The Climate of Man. And, uh, and that sort of got me on this this beat, it's kind of a, a, a twisted story. It's not exactly that I set out to cover climate change. It sort of found me, I found it, it found me um, in the early 2000s. Hmm. And what was, um, what was the nature of climate reporting at that time? Or I guess, what was the main discourse in the media? I guess at that time it was called global warming, which is a very different picture, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, personally, you know, there's a lot of sort of, you know, discussion about what term to use. I, I personally sort of use the terms interchangeably, but um, 
But I think the serious difference at that time was that there was still a lot of, you know, if you read a piece, and this included in the New York Times, um, you know, you would get, you know, some people say X and some people say Y, this idea that has now become known as false balance, you know, where we're going to get uh, someone who we know is going to, you know, be skeptical, I use that term, you know, skeptically, um, about what the scientists say, and we'll quote them too. And it was always the same characters, you know, you had to go to, even then, back then, you had to go to a very small handful of people to get that kind of reaction. And, you know, now we all, you know, know that they were basically being paid pretty directly or indirectly by the fossil fuel companies. Anyway, it was already quite ridiculous at that time, I will say. But journalistic norms die hard. And this issue suffered from that. Climate change coverage really suffered from that for quite a long time, I think. And I think everyone going back and you know reading the coverage once again, it's sort of in a time before a lot of you all were probably reading the coverage, but you would probably be somewhat appalled by that. Um, so I, I had this idea, um, when I set out, because the New Yorker does not, it's not a daily paper, it doesn't abide by quite the same sense of, oh, you know, we're going to have two sides to every story. I, I set out with this, you know, crazily naive idea, I was going to write this series of pieces, and it was going to lay out that this was a huge problem, there was really no debate about it in the scientific community, and that was going to settle the issue, you know, and then we could move on. You know, mm -hmm. that turned out to be um, hopelessly naive um, because here we are, you know, six, 15 years later, uh, you know, still having the same conversation to a certain extent. But I do think that the, the coverage has really moved on and does not no longer treats the science as debatable. Right. That's a very interesting, like, coincidence of timing between um climate reporting becoming popularized and also the internet becoming um, or popularized and more fast paced where the cycle for news is much shorter. Um, do you think that's because one is like a causal factor of the other or, or that the internet was a causal factor for the um, climate reporting to be quicker? Well, I think climate reporting, you know, you could argue it really uh, you know, it was already suffering pre, you know, pre um, internet. So right. I, so I, you know, there's, you know, the internet for a lot of stories that people would call important, you know, as opposed to, um, let's say, uh, you know, um, you know, the latest Meghan Markle story or whatever, you know, it, it, um, it, the internet is really good at getting out information if you want information as we all know now it's also really good at getting out misinformation mm -hmm. um so i think that it has been a very uh you know double-edged um sword as they say it's it's you know if you want reputable climate information quickly the latest study that appeared in nature communications or whatever you will you can find it and you will get you know, really up-to-date information, but you will also find lots and lots of nonsense on the web. So it's pretty mm -hmm. um, tough. And the other point that I would make, and this kind of goes back to, 
you know, daily journalism and the pace of journalism, because climate change is a slow moving catastrophe, you could argue, once again, there's, there's tons of great stuff on the web, there's tons of features from all around the world, but it's not, you know, it's not a listicle, it's not a really quick hit, it doesn't, it's not a story that gives you that, you know, jolt of, um, happiness or whatever we're looking for from those or, or, or outrage or, or whatever the emotion is that brings clicks. So it would, I am not no longer in it, you know, in a daily newsroom and no longer uh, really so much in touch with the metrics of news, but it would be very interesting. And when you have future speakers, maybe asking them, like, how often does a climate change story, um, move to the top of the queue in terms of, you know, audience interactivity. I would very, I'd be real, I personally would be really interested to know. In fact, you've, you've made me think <laughs> I should really go find out. <laughs> Get back with the metrics. I guess like from what I've read, uh, from your reading or your writing rather that I've read, you're kind of the master of the long form. And as I see in like, developing and processing these complex issues into longer form kind of narratives, which I find far more like soothing, I guess, to read. And especially when it has something to do with a crisis and like a, a time, a slow moving crisis, as you said. Um, so what do you, I guess, what, what do you think some of the luxuries of this form are, or of this long form are given the fast news cycle and the absurd aspects of climate change and the impending threats and kind of um, uh, fears that people may <laughs> read on quicker news cycles? <laughs> well, I mean, having a lot of space is is a tremendous luxury. I mean, it really gives you, first of all, it, it's it, it has two dimensions, really. It has time and space. So a lot of what you're going to read in your local newspaper, if you're lucky enough to still have a local newspaper or <laughs> Um, you know, on, on the web is someone had to kick that out uh, pretty soon, pretty quickly, you know, something came up that morning, or if it's a study, you know, a scientific study, sometimes those would be embargoed, they'll, they'll, they'll send them out a couple of days early so that you do have a little bit of time, but then the embargo lifts and you better be ready because you're competing with a lot of people. Um, so I have both the luxury of time, a lot of time. I mean, when I wrote that series on climate change um, that Deborah alluded to, uh, that was, I took a year, you know, that took a, year, a full year to report that. That's a huge luxury. Most people, most journalists do not have that. Um, and then you have, and then you have the space to lay it out, you know, lay out what you want to, to lay out and things, you know, climate change is not terribly complicated. You know, I've covered, mm. um, I once did a story on the large Hadron Collider, where they were looking for the Higgs boson. That is really complicated science. I never really understood that. Um, but, you know, climate change is not terribly complicated, but it's a bit complicated and it's hard to lay it out uh, in a sound bite, you know, in a, you know, and um, so it gives you the space to. Uh, sort of move around a story, not go directly at it. I think that's another point that you're sort of alluding to. You can find a, th a thread that is not, you know, this happened today, but something that's more expanded over, once again, over time and space happening, unfolding over a long time. 
Um, and you can bring in characters, which is also really useful. I, as, as you know, for narrative, for getting people's attention, um, for, for being readable, you know, um, when we read a, you know, when you read a novel, and I'm certainly not writing novels, but you know, you'd never read a novel without characters and it's hard to read a story without characters. Right, right. We were, um, I'm taking a journalism and sustainability cross-listed course called Communicating Sustainability and this semester and some of my classmates are here. Um, and uh, I guess we read an article in our first weeks of reading about how important a human face is to climate change reporting, but also how most of like the sensational and like um, data that comes out um, has no human face and is are these big abstract numbers and metrics like fossil fuel emissions or like unambitious targets, which are sort of hard to, I guess, um, wrap your head around and uh, advocate for in a way. But when what I like about your writing is that it goes into like a deep dive into a very specific place. And I, as you say, that's like the benefit of having a long amount of time or like a year to travel and report it from many different places. But um, yeah, I guess from, from these faces, what has given you um, the most hope or a, a clear image of a crisis at hand from a very specific point in the world? Well, I, I mean, I think you're making a good point. And I, I think that, you know, those abstractions, like all the stories that came out of Glasgow and, you know, COP26, which are always, you know, up here in this kind of bureaucratic language, I, I think, you know, you have to be pretty hardcore to be interested in that. And so another point that I should have made, you know, about the luxury of what I get to do is as you say, I get, I get to travel, I get to go places and place I think with climate change um, is really important. So um, I'd say, you know, I mean, I just did a story this summer, which was a really, um, it was both a really fun story and a really, you know, depressing story at the same time. <laughs> um, it was uh, done from a place called Glen Canyon, which is a, canyon along the Colorado River. It's a canyon sort of upstream from the Grand Canyon. And a lot of people thought it was a more beautiful canyon even than the Grand Canyon. Um, and it got flooded by a, a dam that they put up in the 1960s uh, for water storage. It's debated why they put it up. But anyway, let's just say simplify things, say water storage and hydropower production. And um, there's such a terrible drought along the Colorado right now that this canyon is re-emerging from the water. It was just inundated, you know, it was under, you know, hundreds of feet of water. And now you can go to parts of it that you could not see for since the 60s, since the early 60s. Um, and that was an example of a place really being altered, you know, dramatically by climate change. The, the, the Western US um, and drought is, is a big story. I think it will only get bigger over the next few decades, but uh, you need to sort of pick a place where something, you know, fairly dramatic is happening where you can really see, see what's happening. Um, because I should say there's a tension there. The story that is unfolding out over a long time, sometimes there are acute moments, you know, there are fires and you know hurricanes but mostly it's just 
unfolding over years and years. So here was a place where you could see what they call the bathtub ring. There's this ring of sort of um, calcitic residue that's been deposited on the walls of this canyon. Uh, shows you where the high water mark was and where we are mm -hmm. now, obviously. Um, so it's really dramatic and really, uh, you know, both beautiful. It's a beautiful spot now that it's reemerging, and um, and scary. So that was an example of trying of of a place that you know, presented itself to me. And as soon as I read about it, as soon as I read about, you know, I, I'd heard about Grand Glen Canyon and many people wrote about it. Edward Abbey wrote about it. He took a very famous trip down, down before the canyon was flooded. Um, and as soon as I read a story that said, like, you can go to parts of Glen Canyon now, I was like, definitely, you know, that's the kind of story that I, I am always looking for. Hmm. Hmm. I guess um, I want to shift a little bit to get on to hear about your like your view of where the um, where the discipline is going, given these kind of facets of maybe uh, fast news cycles and uh, disinterest from the public from longer uh, or from bad news, I guess, if it's going to keep coming. Um, so, yeah, I guess how do you consume the news as a as a reader and who do you read to try to get these stories that have faces on them and have visuals of you know watermarks changing over time and visual ecosystems well i i you know i read a lot um both you know every day i read it oh well, i shouldn't say i read them i i i i read through them very fast you know the the times the washington post the wall street journal just see what's in the news what's happening and um what's risen to this sort of top of the news um i follow a lot of people scientists and other journalists other climate journalists on you know on twitter i get all of the news climate newsletters that you know a lot of the publications put out now there are now gazillions of them that you can get and um you know journalists are very um you know we're we're kind of magpies we're always looking for some shiny object you know to um use and and that's very much my you know i don't have like a very um, scientific method here. I, I get the I get science alerts, like I get the alerts from science. I get the you know, so I get all of the um, a lot of stuff coming at me, and then sometimes you'll start to see threads of things um, that are, you know, for a New Yorker story, for a long story, you need sort of more than one spark, if that makes sense. You know, you need something that will start like a true conflagration. And so sometimes I, you know, find one thing over here, I'll make a you know, note of it, I'll put it in a folder, you know, the usual things and, and then things accrete and then you get to a point like, okay, that there's enough there for a story. Right, right. And when you're writing these stories, is it, do you ever um, like attempt to achieve a balance between reporting on, um, the dire threats and also balancing things like hope or resilience or a feeling of hope for the human condition, I guess, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, some people would accuse me of not having uh, struck that balance too well, but I, you know, I, I think, I mean, to go back to that Glen Canyon story, what was so nice about it and what I often am 
looking for is, you know, not the we're all doomed story, which, you know, on some level is really the only story that one should be writing. You know, I don't mm. want to, I'm not trying to in any way uh, sugarcoat things or, um, you know, escape the, the truth here, which is extremely dire. And, uh, you know, I, I can't emphasize that enough, unfortunately. Um, but for the purposes of narrative readability, to be honest, a bit un of unpredictability, you know, I mean, we've all read so many stories like that, that it's just disastrous and going to get worse. I, they don't mm -hmm. seem to get through to the vast majority of people has that, but um, I am looking for something not necessarily that's hopeful, but that's a bit surprising. How's that? Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's a good, it would be like against, I guess, journalistic standards to give false hope or like a <laughs> yeah, sort of I mean, narrative. I don't, I don't think, you know, you do read a lot of stories. Like, I think there's an unbelievable appetite and you read a lot of stories like, you know, this, this is going to save the world. Whenever you see like the headline, this is going to save the world, you know, run the other direction. How's that? Easy fix. Yeah. Speaking of like on the topic of easy fixes and like technological fixes, I want to talk a little bit about your newest book um, and how I really liked how it like zoned in on these specific kind of like almost absurd and like far reaching remedies to problems created by humans. And I think that that um, that connection is kind of funny, but also um, extremely scary, given the <laughs> amount of like new cycles of, you know, technology that will completely eliminate this problem, or, you know, will electrocute the all the fish in the, you know, Chicago River. So um, I guess, where do you see the balance between having paradigm shifts and then technological shifts? And do you try to balance your reporting on both of them? Or do you personally have hope in either one? Well, that is such a good question. And um, I'll just say one thing, um, which is a little bit of an aside, but not much of an aside. <laughs> just before I you know, came on this Zoom, I was reading a story they just appropriated money for a $250 million for that disco barrier that I alluded to in that first chapter, you know, oh, wow. they're not just going to, <laughs> you know, electrocute the fish, they're going to do bubbles and noise. And anyway, they just, um, the Army Corps of Engineers included that in their latest budget. So the first big payment for design work and the initial construction. So that's incredible. That's like an, going to be a billion dollar project. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a bit of news here. Yeah, you heard it here first. Anyway, um, but, uh, you know, the paradigm, I mean, shift in society, I think is, um, you know, to the, as a reporter, I have to report, I'm pretty much tied to what's happening. So I, the reason that that book came to be under White Sky was because as I went around, you know, reporting, that was what was happening. It mm. wasn't that uh, people were, you know, no longer, you know, consuming or had decided, you know, to stop flying or stop eating meat. It was, it was that, well, we were going to do all these things, but we were somehow going to figure out a way, you know, to... Uh, produce cows that you know don't burn methane or whatever and 
I kept coming up with that, coming onto that pattern. Now that by no means, I, I don't think, and I hope the book doesn't suggest this is like the right way to go. <laughs> um, but until I um, see, you know, until we see a lot more evidence of that on the ground, something to report on, it's hard to report on. And I, I will give you an, a, an example. Mm -hmm. in, in 2000, this is all the way back in like 2007, 2008, I went to look for um, a community that had really, that had gone carbon neutral, this word that, you know, we toss around so much these days. And I found one, I found one, it's um, in Denmark, it's an island in Denmark, it's become actually, you know, fairly famous in certain circles, um, Samso it's called, and I went and I did a piece on Samso. And I am really honestly not sure, I don't know this for a fact, but that any other community <laughs> Uh, has really, you know, succeeded in doing that um, since then. That's 2008, you know. So progress on the ground, you know, while there certainly is a lot of progress, there is a lot of change, but but sort of really concrete, um, narratable progress is, mm. is scarcer than you might hope. Let's put it that way. Right. Right. Um. I guess it, I see you as someone, and I don't know if this is like applying a label or if you take this label, but the way you write is kind of like processing a crisis and um, for the public and for readers and for translating daunting facts into prose. Um, so I wonder, like, since you've seen so much and seen so many stories of hope, but also really odd techno fixes and a whole bunch of it, um, do you ever experience things like eco grief when you're in your writing process or like burnout from uh, reporting on, I guess, stagnant changes or stagnant processes and advancements, um, even in just super localized areas? Every day. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, and it's really not just climate change, honestly. I mean, climate change um gets all the attention and some people i think probably in the conservation biology world might would even tell you it, it probably is getting you know maybe even more attention than it deserves sort of sucking the oxygen mm -hmm. out of the room i mean there's so much there's so many imminent threats to so many you know i'll give you a local example and it's probably affecting i'm not sure if it's affecting you in halifax because i i don't know the range of the trees and of the bugs but you know all of our ash trees are dying right in my backyard you know I have all these dead trees because of an you know emerald ash borer which is this imported pest and you know so our ash trees are dying that follows our elm trees that all died and our mm -hmm. chestnut trees that all died so you you can watch this process of you know not necessarily extinction I don't think ash trees are going extinct but of really dramatic ecological change you can watch it in real time in your own backyard um and that is uh if that isn't painful <laughs> to people you know it's it's only because they're not really you know it's only if you're not really paying attention but if you are I don't think there's really any place you could go now where people who have watched things over time wouldn't say I see really dramatic changes the kinds that you know one human being shouldn't see in one human lifetime. Mm. Mm. 
do you think there'll ever be a time where like bad news lands on like numbed minds or minds that have been kind of like gone kaput because of <laughs> eco grief and like inundation in the news cycles? Well, I, I think that we're in this, you know, once again, I, I don't want to be like, you know, too, too much of the downer, but I, I think that we're, you know, we're, we're in a situation where I think people are operating under some weird illusion or some people, you know, some people are just in total denial. So I don't know mm -hmm. what, what their response is going to be. And some people are in this mode of like, you know, well, when it's really bad, when it gets really bad, we'll, we'll deal with it. We'll figure out some way to deal with it. And I think what people fail to appreciate is once it's really bad, you know, you're, you're not, you're not getting back. You're not getting back uh, what you had for, you know, many, many generations. Um, so I think there's, I still think there's, and this is, you know, my own view, and I don't have scientific information to back this up. I'd be very interested to hear what other people think. I still think there's a, a lack of really understanding the scale and scope and time frame of what we're talking about. I mean, we're still arguing about, you know, things like 1.5 degrees, which are, um, you know, honestly, the geophysics of it are, are almost impossible at this point. You know, we need to um, kind of face up to that, I, I think, and really be thinking, you know, really seriously about how, you know, you know, there's a mantra in, in climate change circles that sort of, um, you know, manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. That's the situation that we're in. Um, and we have to do both. And we're kind of doing neither right now, in my, in my view, um, in a systematic way. And in the US, US, I can't really speak for Canada very well, but in the US, as you all know, we're just completely incapable of doing anything right now. Right. So right. that's a pretty scary situation. Yeah, that feels a little immobilizing, I guess, or like- It, um... it does. And I think, you know, people in, in the US, and once again, I can't speak for, for Canada, but would say, but I'm sure there's a lot of this in Canada too, you know, that, you know, local communities and states and have to, have to try to forge ahead. And I think to a certain extent that is happening, but um, it's very easy to sort of stop progress. Our political system is built for that. I don't know about the Canadian system, but the American system was built very much for a time when, you know, sort of doing nothing was okay. <laughs> it was fine, you know, but that's no longer adequate to the situation. And our politics, you know, now I'm getting off on a rant. I don't want to rant, but our politics are not suited to the moment that we live in, unfortunately. And so it's very hard. It's really hard for people uh, to stay engaged uh, and just realize that the system is 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 working against them. Right, right. When you're writing, do you have like a specific body of audience that you imagine or that you find yourself writing for, or um, is that something you can like vividly imagine when you're writing? <laughs> you know, that's that's a really good question. I mean, I right you know you, you'd be surprised you know the new yorker goes to you know i think it's probably almost a million subscribers maybe more and you'd be surprised how little you know how little reaction uh you get so my ideal reader honestly 
is kind of myself, you know, um, I'm writing for, um, I'm envisioning my reader a, a bit like me, you know, someone who's interested in, in a good story. And I personally, you know, will read a good story about, about almost anything, you know, so I'm hoping that my reader who is probably more and more concerned about climate change over the years, you know, um, but who's not devoted devoting his or her life to that concern has a million other things that they're worried about <laughs> will pick it up because it's a good story in some way right right it's but like that's not you know, existential yeah that, that's not i mean people very you know people will write for very different audiences and for different reasons and i think that uh, you know one of the problems if i can go go back to problems of of climate communication is you know sort of the preaching to the choir problem we really have that problem you know that um people who care care and people who don't care don't care and how you cross that line you know when i wrote that series originally back in 2005 you know the best reaction that i got was from people saying to me, I didn't realize, you know, I didn't care about climate. I just skipped all that coverage until I read that series and I realized what was at stake. And that was really, that kept me going, you know, it kept me going till about now. Now I'm not sure I still have faith that those people are out there who can be reached, you know. Right, right. For the, since some of my classmates from that class are here and a lot of the sustainability students, um, like obviously four years of processing climate change and studying it in a very formal way leads to these kinds of feelings of burnout or like, um, I guess, lack of hope in the most simple way. Um, do you have any wishes for future sustainability communicators or climate change communicators um, in their writing and in their process, um, and also just in their own personal, um, I guess, care as they write about collective crises and um, report on it for people. Well, I think, and I don't, I don't want to get like too, you know, philosophical here, I suppose, but I, I think that, <laughs> you know, you have to take satisfaction in what you can take satisfaction in has that and you can't imagine you know if you're going into this the way i started out you know okay i'm gonna i'm gonna settle this debate and i'm gonna um you know that's gonna be that and then we're gonna move forward um you know that's not gonna happen i've had to grapple with that mm -hmm. you all are going to have to grapple with that but there are still many um you know we we all everyone you know, in, in, in modern society does, does some kind of work. And, you know, it's really quite a privilege in a lot of ways. I, I consider it a tremendous privilege to be able to write about what I consider really the most important issues facing, you know, humankind right now. Does that mean that, you know, I'm gonna make a difference? Not necessarily. Um, but I try to keep focused on, well, I'm incredibly fortunate to have a way of engaging with this issue um, 
that, you know, that also, you know, puts dinner on the table. That's, that's, I'm pretty lucky to, um, to be able to do that. How's that? And, and yeah. people, um, whatever you're, you're doing, there will be, you know, either just, you know, a job well done is a job well done. And you have to try to take satisfaction from that without taking responsibility, I think, for the outcome here, which, you know, I don't want to say is predetermined, but a lot of it's already baked in and um, that can be paralyzing. I, I mm. totally understand that. And I, you know, as I say, I feel it all the time myself. So it's not like I have a great magic wand I can wave and tell you, but that's what I think, um, I guess what I would advise young people starting out, you know, try to find something you, you can take that at some part of the job that you can take satisfaction and you don't know yet, even what the job is exactly, you will all be doing different jobs um, and try to connect with the importance of the moment without taking on the whole burden of the moment. And that's a lot easier right. said than done. But that's a very, that seems like a very personally like sustainable and for, for individual, on an individual level to process and sit in the moment that is a crisis and observe it, but also understand, um, yeah, the collective burden it poses and um, how scary it can be to think about for too long. All right, so we're coming in to the end. Um, but yeah, we got a big thank you in the chat. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, I haven't seen a lecture yet on the, you know, reporting and communication side of climate change and sustainability in this series or in my time at Dow. So this has been a real treat. And yeah, thank you so much. It's been well, an honor. Thank you all. And I hope, um, I, I really want to say that I, um, they were all really great questions and I hope that you all, um, yeah, find, find something to do in, 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 in life that um, both moves the ball forward and, and, and gives you some personal satisfaction. And that is, it's, it's a tall bar, it's a high bar, I understand. But I, I think that, as I say, one of the privileges of working in this area is there's just no shortage of work to be done. <laughs> I think that's very true. And, and <clears throat> most of our students are interdisciplinary. They take two different majors, which I think also enriches um, their perspectives going forward. And uh, certainly you have done that for them this evening as well. And uh, your time is very much appreciated, Elizabeth. Thank you for spending the time with us. Thank, thanks. thanks to everyone who showed up. And thanks to Lizzie for great questions. Yeah, good job. And thank you, Spencer. Great conversation. Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. And thank you for sharing so, so much of your personal perspective. This marks the end of another awesome episode. So thank you all for tuning in once again. We truly hope you enjoyed this engaging conversation as much as we did. 
Uh, we want to remind you to follow us on our show socials and to keep up to date with all of our exciting announcements. So you can find us on Instagram or at TikTok at WhatTheSusPod. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to uncover, or if you just want to learn more about us, please feel free to reach out to us on our email, which is wtsust at gmail.com, or you could just follow us on social media and contact us that way. Um, but yeah, we would love to engage with you more. So thanks again for listening to our podcast, and we want you to know that we appreciate you and value your support so much. We'll see you next time. While this podcast is supported by the College of Sustainability at Dalhousie University, the thoughts and beliefs shared by hosts do not reflect the views of Dalhousie University.